Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. And we're live. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. I've got head coach of the USA Rugby Eagles, Gary Gold, today. That is, that's pretty awesome. Uh, Gary, pleasure to talk to you again. And, uh, you know, to give uh, the American rugby fan your your full story. And then yeah, thank talk. you very much for having me. Yeah, it's good then, to be on with you. And then we'll talk a bit about the Eagles and integration with the new high-performance systems that are coming online in the U.S. So you're from Cape Town, South Africa. So – what what was it like growing up there? And then, I mean, Cape Town's a very large city. So what specific area within Cape Town? Yeah. So um, I'm, as you say, I'm from Cape Town. Um, I went to school here. Um, no, it's a, it's a great, pa- it's a great place, a great part of the world. Um, obviously I grew up in a very different South Africa to what it is today. Um, sadly, it was a, uh, in, in, in my earlier days, it was an apartheid-driven South Africa, so my parents were, were pretty strong activists against, against the apartheid regime, so got to grow up um, realizing at, at a stage that um, you know, our country wasn't exactly a shining light in the world, and, uh, but then you know, got to spend my teenage years and my early adolescence years seeing um, you know, Mr. Mandela come out of jail and, and obviously then become president of the country, and that was an amazing turnaround. So yeah, it's been a it's been a great lifestyle, and uh, um, yeah, uh, Cape Town is. Um, I think we'll always be home. You know, when I'm finished with the Eagles' job, then that's where we'll probably head back and settle. But who knows? Who knows? You never know. How many sports did you play growing up? When did you know rugby become your for your focus? You know, in, interestingly enough, at junior school, uh, the junior school I attended didn't have rugby, so I played soccer. I played a lot of cricket, um, and then you know used to used to do a little bit of running and and played a lot of squash. And early days started playing a bit of golf. So, you know, we we we're very lucky because it's a it's a sunshine country. So you know we were very outdoorsy and played loads of different sports. And it's interesting now speaking to a lot of the guys in our field at the moment about youth development. Um, and a lot of stuff that we talk about is, is you know, that, that kids today should, should be playing multi-sports, you know, um, allow them to catch and pass and throw and uh, tackle, you know, hit a baseball or, you know, uh, hit a puck on the ice, you know, just um, you know, develop their all-round motor skills. So I don't think it really happens that much anymore. I think kids become specialised at a younger age. And uh, But when you, when you see the, the demands of... of uh, you know, when you see the demands of sports like golf and stuff, you understand why that happens. So, uh, but yeah, it was a great lifestyle. We played loads of different sports. Talking about multi-sport athletes, we keep looking. Um, you know, you, you said specialization at an early age. We keep look at every year when they have the NFL draft, which is probably the one of the pinnacle sports in this country. Is that usually the top? like picks the majority of the top picks in the draft were multi-sport athletes until you know high school and still most of them were multi-sport athletes in high school which is you know different for you know other sports maybe baseball and basketball where those guys specialize from you know 10 12 years old yeah 
So, yeah, yeah, no, it is interesting that they, you know, that that there is such an emphasis on that. But again, you know, the demands of professional sports today, and and and, and as you as you spoke about now, you know, the the challenges of being able to make the draft and how few people really in the bigger picture actually do make the draft. You can understand why, you know, the emphasis is on on specialization at such an early age. So how would you describe Winberg Boys High School? Because I always look at uh, one of my friends uh, grew up in South Africa and went to Pretoria Boys. And it's always it's always different compared to high schools in the United States. Yeah. Um, as, you, as you say, my school is Wyoming Boys, uh, which, is, uh, which is just down the local suburb from where I used to live. I mean, it was... Um, it's the second oldest school in the country, um, so we had uh, we had a huge amount of traditions in, at the school. Um, I would say it was probably slightly colonial background. Um, the schooling system was based on the on the English schooling system from the English settlers that came to South Africa in the eighteen twenties, um, and it was a um, you know it was it was a, it was a, a good environment. I mean, it was a it was as I say back in those days it was. Uh, it was still quite old school, in as much as the fact that it was um, it was quite an authoritarian environment. Um, you know, very strict, lots of rules, and having to have your blazer done up permanently, and you know which side of the corridor you walk on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so pretty old school from that point of view, but you know, um, huge amount of, of emphasis on culture and sport and. Um, yeah, I mean, when, once I started getting into high school, you know, across the boundaries of all the different sports that we played there, and, um, and obviously that's where, where I started rugby. So traditional rugby school, what we would call a traditional rugby school in South Africa, um, you know, at under-19 level, Weinberg could put out as many as eight, ten teams just at under-19 level. You know, under-16, they could put out four, five, um, under-15, four, five, and under-14, four, five. So that's how many rugby teams you'd have in the school. So, um, nice. very, very, you know, very big rugby school, traditional rugby school, and has produced, um, you know, a dozen or so pretty well-known named Springboks, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, it was a good environment to grow up in. So I can't really find much about your time as a player. Uh, could you tell us about that period of your life, which, you know, then Maybe. led to you as a coach? For that. <laughs> you scrubbed the yeah. internet. <laughs> well, I left um, – I left school and um, uh, and I went straight to the army. I had to I had to do two okay. years in military training. Okay. So um, that's really where I would say my rugby got a bit of a kicker. Uh, I'd say I was average at best. Is 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 probably the way I describe myself as a player. Um, and and maybe even then I'm being too generous to myself. Um, but then when I went to the army and you know finished basic training and and um, you know realized actually what being fit was about um, because by design, uh, uh, by default, not by design, because obviously we were we were doing military training and up four o'clock in the morning, every morning to be doing training. Um, I just started finding the game to be an easier game to play, um, you know, the fitter you are. Um, and for the first time, really, after having played rugby for most of my, my childhood life, I actually really started thoroughly enjoying it and decided I was going to make a little bit more of it. Um, Again, you know, gym programs weren't something that you, you did that regularly. You know, you, you went to gym voluntarily, but, I mean, you probably didn't do it um, uh, uh, by, by force of the club. But, you know, in the early days, we trained 
twice a week and the Tuesdays and the Thursdays and played on the Saturday. In the latter years of my playing career, we probably started training a little bit more, but um, I played for a couple of clubs around Cape Town. Um, again, uh, uh, in the in the time when I left school, we were still in the apartheid area, so South Africa wasn't playing international rugby. So our local provincial team, Western Province, which is now the Stormers in Super Rugby, they were like the big team. Um, they were and they played interprovincial competitions, and then just below them was club level, and that's where I played. I played so I played. I played for uh, three or four different clubs over a 13-year period. Um, yeah, but just a hell of a lot of fun. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, got to play, I think, over my career, just over 100 first-team games. So, yeah, but, um, you know, the club rugby game is is uh, still very strong in, 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 in South Africa. It's still a very strong aspect, but, you know, now it's two or three or four notches down from the top level of the game, which is obviously international rugby. But that's uh, that's the only level I got to play at was at club rugby. So, you know, what was the point that you decided you wanted to be a professional coach? So in '97, halfway through the season, we we went on an overseas tour. Uh, it was a representative team that I'd been selected for, and I and I I had hurt my shoulder, and I was hoping that it was going to get better, and it wasn't really getting better. Um, funnily enough, believe it or not, I was actually quite into long distance running at the time, and I just thought, you know, I was 30 years old and I'd, I'd, had, I'd had a great time playing rugby and I thought probably time for me to, to give it up with this injury. And um, we were halfway through the season and the club I, I was a member of at the time called Villages Rugby Club, they, um, they were having um, some issues with their coaches of the third and fourth team. So I volunteered and I said, you know, I'd love to go down. I've always, even though I was a pretty average player, I was always really fascinated about the the coaching aspect of the game you know or in many cases the lack of of coaching that we had i thought we could have been a lot smarter in planning and preparation when i was a player um and and maybe that's what i relied on because i wasn't so good i needed you know i needed to to find um, areas you know where where we could understand the game a little bit better and so i spent some i spent that year with the third and fourth team and then the following year, I got invited to with a very good friend of mine to coach the first team, and uh, that was '98 and '99. And that was the first year we won the uh, what would they call the Grand Challenge Cup here, which which had never really been done by a non-university club. So we don't separate our club rugby like you, you, we've got in the states. We've got D1A, and then you've still got your normal club rugby. So the college game has its own league, and the and the club, the other clubs have their own league, and we, we don't do, we didn't do that yet. You know, if you're a rugby club, you could play in the in the what the Grand Challenge was called, which is the top club league. And yeah, most of the universities, because the amount of players that they had, they were always the better team. So, you know, we had a very very good year that that year, and ended up winning the league. And um, yeah, and as I say, from there the rest is history. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, uh, and then a year later, I got an opportunity to to get my first professional job, which was um, going to England to coach London Irish with a very good friend of mine. and So we embarked on that and I, I sold my little business that I had and my wife and myself and the little baby went overseas and <laughs> that's how it all started. So yeah, you uh, get to London Irish under Brendan Venter. How did, you know, how did that become a thing? So to cut a long story short, Brendan and I were friends and, um, I met him when he came down to play for Western Province. Um, in those days, in fact, I had a sports marketing company um, 
where sports marketing and certainly in South Africa was a relatively new business because the professional game around rugby particularly was only relatively young. I'd only been professional for a couple of years. Um, so I had a sports marketing company and I was doing some work for some players. Um, I was representing some and I was doing some sponsorship deals for others and, and helping others in various different aspects. And, I, and one of the guys was that I was helping was Brendan. Um, and Brendan knew about my keen interest in coaching. And in fact, still as a player, he came down and did a couple of sessions with us and um, at the club. And, and one day, it was Easter in 2000, I was sitting with Brendan having a coffee. And he said to me um, he needed a coach to go overseas with him, but somebody who had um, who had the ability to go and work in the UK. And I said, well, I've got the ability to work in the UK. My grandparents were, were British. So, and that's how then he said, perfect. And, you know, later that day, I got the, the old facts uh, of the contract come through and that was that was how it was started but it was it was an amazing beginning to a professional career I mean I don't think I could ever have wished for to be any better way I mean Brendan was Brendan went in there as the player coach um, so again even by default I got quite a lot of um, responsibility um, you know uh, because obviously Brendan was having to play and so I was thrown into the deep end at quite an early age and if I, if I look back now, I most certainly was probably too young to have assumed that much responsibility, but um, it was a good learning curve. And, you know, and Brendan's, a, Brendan's an incredible individual, you know, so I learned a huge amount from him and still do. I mean, we're still in touch all the time. So are you the real reason behind Rob Hoadley's success? <laughs> no, far from it. Brendan probably is. Brendan probably is, but uh, no, definitely not. I'm not the reason for Hodes' success. But I'm very proud of him. I think he's done, doing a great job. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think they're going to go from strength to strength. It's, it's fantastic to see. So how would you describe that period uh, at London Irish? Because, um, you know, Brendan Venter left in 03, and then you became the head coach from 03 to 2005. Yeah, look, it was, um, I mean, it was, as I said earlier, you know, it couldn't have started off any better. We went to London Irish. Um, we had no current internationals playing for us. We had a couple of ex-internationals. Brendan was there. Nakadrotsky was there. Chris Sheesby was there. there were, had, Kieran Dawson was there. There were a handful of ex-internationals, um, um, but nobody that was current. Um, and I say this with all... Uh, respect. I mean, we're a real group of no-name brands from the players to the coaching group. Of course, nobody had ever even heard of me because I'd never ever coached before. And we just created an unbelievable bond in the club. Um, the camaraderie and the work ethic that the guys decided to to bind to, mainly under Brendan, was fantastic. And, um, you know, this no-name team, you know, ended up coming, I think we came third in the Premiership that year when we were odds-on favourite to be relegated. And in those days, they used to have a cup competition, a knockout cup competition where every single club in the whole of the United Kingdom could participate in, very much like the FA Cup in football. Um, and we ended up getting to the final, you know, ended up getting to the final and and played and beat Northampton in the final in, in front of a pack Twickenham that year. So, I mean, it was it was magical, you know, how it started off. And unfortunately, there was a sustainability issue. It was very difficult for them to sustain uh, that makeup of a club who had success so quickly, um, as you can imagine, a lot of the guys got picked up by other clubs. Um, and you know, London Irish wasn't an incredibly wealthy club. I mean, they you know they couldn't offer silly silly contracts, and 
a couple of years later, it, 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 unfortunately, things just became a bit tougher. But, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a great learning curve in the, in the history of the club. And a few years later, under um, one of the guys who we actually appointed as an academy manager, London Irish got to a premiership final again and only lost by a point to, to Leicester. So um, they're having their tough times now, but they'll be a club who'll come back. They've got uh, great people there involved in the club, but it was an amazing time. And then when Brendan did go back, he went back a bit prematurely. Um, he's a doctor by medical practice, and he went back to Cape Town. And I, I, I look back at it now, and as I say, I mean, I, I definitely think I got the job too early. Um, it was a huge task, you know, at uh, whatever I was, 34, 30, 33 or 34 years old, you know, two years into being a pro coach and already a head coach of a premiership team. It was a huge learning curve, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I got, and um, you, you, you learn a lot in adversity, and uh, it was it was a brilliant time in my life. Yeah. So you then uh, returned to South Africa, and you coached Western Province first as forwards coach, and then as head coach. How were those structures different compared to when you were at Irish? They were different. You know, I think the game off the field in the UK had evolved really well. Um, the structures that were put into place about the governance of the game, uh, the formation of an organization called the PRL, which governs the premiership, uh, the advent of the academies and bringing academy players through was a very good system and something that wasn't really, wasn't really around in South Africa at the time of going back. Uh, the South African model in those days was just there's so much talent. There's just so many very good rugby players. So, um, yeah, look, it was a huge honour to be able to go back to Western Province. I mean, that was obviously Cape Town where I grew up. It was the team I grew up supporting. Um, you know, still the team I've got a very soft spot for, which is the Stormers in Western Province. And, and um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderful opportunity, but it, it was tough times. I mean, South African teams were, were coming to terms with professionalism, uh, coming to terms with understanding um, how, how to run professionalism and, you know, times were tight and they were they were difficult. You know, because uh, all the demands were out at the moment. Now that we had to pay professional rugby players, but didn't necessarily have a model to sustain that in terms of being able to afford that. So it was tough times in in in, in those days. And um, uh, but it was uh, you know it was uh, there were a good couple of years. I mean, I, th I think I was with the Stormers and Western Brothers for about five or six years. And you know, we had some you know we had some some very good times as well. We had a couple of seasons in Super Rugby where we did particularly well and got to some playoffs. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a good time. From there, you jumped to the Springbok staff as forwards coach under Peter Davillier. Uh, You know, you guys beat the Lions 2-1 to one, uh, when they toured South Africa. You won a Tri-Nations championship. How was that? And then specifically to that period, how do you coach and train international props? Yeah, look um, – Again, Aaron, I must be very honest here. You know, sometimes, sometimes as a coach or in, in life, you, you you get a bit of luck, and sometimes you you get some tough times. You know, and you know, I think I've had them all. But um, to to have been appointed to Peter's coaching staff in two thousand eight, you know, was was a, a real privilege. I mean, to be able to coach the Springboks, understand as well that we. We took over the Springboks straight after they won the World Cup in 2007. So we were we were inheriting a team who couldn't really do very much better uh, than winning a World Cup. 
I mean, 2008 in the beginning was a bit of a struggle because a couple of guys that won the World Cup had, had left and Victor Matfield and John Smith and Farid Dupree had all gone to, to play rugby overseas, France and Japan and, and, and the likes thereof. And the team took a little bit of a wobble and, um, you know, credit to Peter, you know, he, he went to those players who were still young enough to play and he said to them, look, you know, I mean, you've got the British and Irish Lions coming. And the interesting thing about the British and Irish Lions is you know, you, you get to go to a World Cup every four years when you play for your country. You, you, you should really only face the Lions, British and Irish Lions, once in your career because they only come around every 12 years. They either go to Australia, New Zealand or South Africa and they alternate every 12 years. So it was a big deal for this group, you know. Um, and um, yeah, Peter assembled a, a fantastic group of, of players, you know, pretty much the same bunch that had won the World Cup. And these guys had a new mission, you know, and the new mission was that they wanted to get to number one in the world um, because they weren't they, they weren't necessarily number one in the world. The All Blacks were still number one in the world, um, and and they really wanted to do, avenge the '97 uh, British and Irish Lions series where we lost two one. The Springboks lost two one, um, and you know really it was on autopilot. You know the, the players knew what they were doing. It was really just about creating an environment and and managing it. And you know to to your question about the props, you know we we inherited so many quality, quality individuals as props. You know, guys who had played 100 Super Rugby games, a handful of them had played over 50 test matches. So, you know, I, I sometimes feel in that case, you know, a coach can probably do more harm than more good, you know, if he doesn't know what he's doing. So I, I don't want to say it was an easy job because it was never an easy job. I mean, the pressures of being involved with the Springboks are absolutely immense and the expectations are huge. But what was easier is that you knew you had a group of players who were so highly experienced that they knew what, what, what they would do during the week to be able to give them the very best chance of producing on the weekends. And so it was more about collaborating with them and, and getting an understanding to work together with them than, than going out and teaching the prop how to scrum because that was never really what I needed to do. Um, but, it, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge privilege and... You know, as you say, you know, winning the Tri-Nations and beating the British Irish Lions in 2009 and then being voted um, Team of the Year by the IRB was, uh, was a big year for us. You know, I mean, uh, and, and, you know, at the time of the Springboks, there were some incredible milestones that the group were able to achieve. You know, I mean, in, in four years, never lost to Wales or England. Um, one massively historic victory at Twickenham. We would beat them 42-6. Uh, and there just so many good memories, you know, of um, of coaching and the pressure. And then, uh, you know, none more so than being able to beat the All Blacks four times, you know, in, in, in our tenure that we were there. So, um, yeah, there were some there were some very good times. And, again, just brilliant to work with players of that calibre, you know. Uh, probably taught me more than I taught them. So 2011, World Cup year, was that... Uh, were, were the expectations set as World Cup final or bust, or did it just shake out that way when you guys, you know, lost in the quarterfinal? No, the expectations were were definitely to retain the cup. No doubt about that. Uh, and it's probably one of the most difficult stories to tell because I'll probably look back now and I'll struggle to under to understand if I've ever been in a group of players that were better organised and and more focused in this group. Uh, just everything went right for us. I mean, you know, the, the preparation, how we prepared, um, it's just too long a story to go into, but, 
you know, we thought the stars were aligned. I mean, we, you know, we started the Rugby World Cup playing some really good rugby. We won an incredibly tight encounter against Wales in the opening game. Um, ironically enough, if we had lost that game, we very well may have gone on to win the World Cup because we would have been drawn in a different pool. But uh, we won all our pool games, um, some unbelievably tough fixtures. I mean, we played a, a very, very good Samoan team um, and beat them. Um, some runaway runaway victories against a couple of other guys, but we were dominant. I mean, we dominated that pool and did really, really well. And never in our wildest dreams did we think that we would we would come up short. You know, um, played really well against Australia, and for whatever the reasons are, um, unfortunately, you know, we just didn't come out on the right side of the scoreboard, and it was it was devastating. I mean, I've never been in a place where I've just uh, seen so many grown men crying, and it was, you know. I thought we had done, you know, more than enough to at least, at least have qualified through to get through to the finals. Um, um, and in in many ways, I, I I feel very very confident that we would have drawn the All Blacks in the semi final, and and I feel very confident we would have been able to win that. So it wasn't to be, um, and that's life, and that's one of the downsides of coaching. Unfortunately, you know, you, you you have your great days, but you have your very 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 disappointing days, and you know, none more so than that day. So the next part of your career. Uh... I mean, it really highlights what I've liked about your resume is that you've chosen hard jobs continuously. Uh, you take over Newcastle and they just miss staying in the premiership. You know, how was that experience at Newcastle? Yeah, again, in context, I think you need to understand in context that I had had talks with Bath whilst we were still at the World Cup. And um, win, lose or draw the World Cup, we we knew that we weren't going to continue. Um, our contracts weren't renewed and and we knew we knew that that was the case. There was no drama with that whatsoever. So um, I had been approached by Bath and um, had pretty um, pretty convincing talks, uh, you know, even over the period of time over the World Cup um, to start the following summer um, at Bath. And so when the World Cup finished, which was end of October, got home and, you know, spent some time with the family in November, December, you then start getting a bit itchy and, 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 and knowing full well that, you know, we're going to move to England and going to start in Bath in the summer. Um, I got this phone call in, in the middle of January saying, look, you know, Newcastle and nine points clear at the bottom of the table and, you know, they need some help. And I just thought, well, what a fantastic way to get back into the premiership. You know, it had been nearly 10 years since I'd been there and go and help the club. Um, in many ways, not really that much expectations because people thought they were going to get relegated in any case. Um, and we had a wonderful run. I mean, we had a fantastic run. I mean, we closed the points difference down by nine points and ended up, you know, only only going down um, on points difference to Wasps, who we actually, ironically enough, in the last game of the season beat away from home. So um, it was a great experience. Again, maybe made easier by me the fact that I knew I was going to go to Bath. I mean, I was never really going to stay at Newcastle. And, um, but, but, it, but it's interesting that you, you should observe that, Aaron, because it, it's true. You know, I've, you know, I've often had this conversation, you know, even with my wife, is, is I, I have taken tougher jobs. And, and there's, a, there's a part of that is that I think that's really where the challenges lie. You know, I mean, I, I, obviously it's about winning trophies and obviously you want to be successful. Of that, there's no question of a doubt. But fundamentally, you know, there is something so amazing about this game of rugby that if you go into a group of guys who are maybe struggling and have got their backs against the wall, 
that they, they need to understand that there's a huge amount of potential that lies within them as a group. And that's the beauty with rugby. You know, the, you know, rugby is not always just about the most talented. You know, I mean, there's so many other aspects to being successful in rugby around the character of the group, the work ethic, the ability to be physical, um, the mental aptitude to be able to pitch up in every game and understand that, you know, the next most important game is the next important game is your next game. And um, to create that bond within a group of players is, is in many ways, some, sometimes more rewarding than, than winning trophies. Um, although everybody loves winning trophies. So that, that is something that I've enjoyed. You know, I have enjoyed, I mean, again, be brutally honest with you, there are people who have criticized me heavily for that, said that, it, you know, you've got to worry about what it looks like on the CV, but it doesn't worry me because it's not what I do it for. You know, I mean, I, I am, I am, and, you know, there'll be people who don't want to work with me and there are other people who do want to work with me, and that's going to happen no matter what nonsense is on a, a person's CV. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've enjoyed those challenges. I mean, they've they've led to a lot of sleepless nights. I can tell you that on many times I thought back to the Springbok days and I thought, wow, you know, much rather just work with a great bunch of players who I know more than often are going to go out and win. Um, but sometimes it's, there's a lot more to that. You know, there's a, there's a lot more to be said about working with people in adversity, you know, and seeing pre- people fulfill true, true potential. And that's what excites me. So you move on to Bath and, you know, you guys have a relatively tough year in the premiership, but you do well in the European Challenge Cup, win all your pool matches. Overall, really successful year. Um and then you move up to director of rugby. How was this, you know, job different from Newcastle? Yeah, that's also not quite really what happened. Um, I didn't necessarily move up to director of rugby. I know it's been reported like that. Um, but the, the the role really was that I was the head coach and um, what we then decided, what I didn't decide to do, the, the club decided to do, we all decided to do in, in my third year, was that we would promote one of the assistant coaches to do the on-field day-to-day stuff as the head coach. And as you say, then I move into the director of rugby role, but still oversee the rugby. And uh, yeah, that, that was just, a, that, that just led, led to a complete breakdown in communications and understanding of levels of responsibility between the parties. Um, it, was a, it was a move that in hindsight, you know, I'm not sure uh, we needed to do. I'm not sure why it did actually um, go that route. And unfortunately, you know, like I've spoken about so many of the, the good times that we have in rugby, unfortunately, that ended up being a pretty bad time. Um, it was a breakdown in communication. I think there was a severe lack of leadership um, uh, at the club at that time. And it ended up in, in me parting ways with the club. Um, at a time where, as you say, you know, the club, were, we were doing really well. You know, we were third in the premiership at the time and we were unbeaten in all of our European competitions. So, yeah, it was a it was a tough time. Um, but, you know, most professional coaches, if you're in the game for more than 10 years, you, you are going to have tough times, you know. And, um, again, it's just uh, it's the way we react to, towards those tough times that I think are important. So let's talk about Kobelko Steelers, Japan. Um, you Get to the top of the table, um, losing the semifinal. Overall, you know, how would you describe the structures in Japan? Yeah, again, um, you know, I thought after the hustle and bustle of the premiership and before that, 
international rugby that, you know, I thought that I, I maybe wanted to try something different in rugby. Um, and it really, I felt the time was right to, to go on an adventure, to have a look at how things were going in Japan. I've also felt, Aaron, as well, is that not that I necessarily want to, uh, I didn't know, I don't necessarily wanted to plan out that you have too many jobs, but I do think that the more you can travel the globe and the more you can experience different cultures, particularly within rugby, you know, so much more you will learn. You, you know, the way Japanese players will um, have to adhere to the game will be different to maybe the way New Zealanders or, 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 or Australians or English guys adhere to the game. So, um, and, I, and I feel I was right. I feel there was a huge amount of learning. So it was at a time that they, they were really putting in an effort in the professional game and the structures were really, really good. I mean, there were two pools of eight and everybody plays each other during the course of the season. As you say, um, uh, the Steelers, uh, Kobe Steelers were a pretty good club in the late 80s. Um, but had been near misses for, for a number of years. And, you know, one of the things that they, you know, they asked me or they tasked me with doing is when I got in there is to, is to see, if, you know, we can get them back to, you know, to being the top four club again. And, and you know, as you say, I mean, it's, it's one of those leagues um, where you, very similar to the premiership, where you, you have a table, the log points, and then you, you play in a final, the top teams play off in a final. And, you know, it was amazing that we ended up top of the league that year. You know, so that in that in and of itself was was a, a fantastic accomplishment. And I, and if I'm honest with you, I probably think if I look back at that now, that probably also was our undoing because I think the guys worked so hard to top the league. Uh, we then ended up playing uh, Yamaha, who we had played two weeks before and beaten by 40 points. Um, and I just think the focus wasn't there. You know, for whatever the reasons were. Um, it was a, a bad day at the office and we got well beaten that day in the semifinals. And I think that, you know, the guys were still, you know, euphoric about the fact that they'd won the league, but that didn't really mean anything when you go into playoffs, as you as you well know. So yeah. um, it was the start of a good thing, you know, I, I, I thought. And um, I planned to be there for a good couple of years and then obviously got approached um, to go back to the Sharks. So that was certainly something that wasn't in the plan at the time. Um and uh, so I was sad to leave Japan. It was a it was a great experience, and uh, I must say I recommend to everybody if you can get to the Rugby World Cup next year. It's a it's a great country to go to. So you take over Sharks with limited time. I th- what I read, you had like three or four weeks uh, with the team before Super Rugby started. Did that impact what you were going to do with the team? And because you guys improved in in your second seasons in Super Rugby and the Curry Cup. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I don't even think it was three weeks. I mean, I literally flew in from Japan and I met the guys at the airport. They were flying out to Toulon to play a preseason game against Toulon in France. And then the, the Super Rugby started a week later. I mean, I don't for one second say that anything that the guys did in the preseason was wrong. Please don't. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I wasn't there, um, but, but it, it was a difficult time. It, it was a difficult time. And Jake White was there the year before me. He he left on difficult circumstances. Um, there, you know, there was a little bit of turmoil in, in in the camp within the boys for whatever the reasons are. And it was a tough it was a tough gig to start. I mean, you know, two weeks later we started playing our first game. I think we played the Cheetahs in the first game at home. 
Um, and I, you know, I realized there was a lot of work on, on other aspects that we needed to do. So it was a tough season that season. I mean, we, we struggled through that Super Rugby competition. We won a couple of games that we shouldn't have won. We lost a couple of games we shouldn't have lost. Um, but, you know, by the shark standards, it wasn't, it wasn't a great year. But as you say, you know, the, the following year was a completely different atmosphere. You know, we had a, we had a good proper preseason. We had a great bunch of players. Um, and we ended up making the playoffs, you know, of Super Rugby that year, you know. Um, it, was, it was the year that the, the competition changed the structures. So it was very, very uh, awkward structures because you played in certain pools. So that happened to be the year we only played New Zealand teams. Um, and, you know, we played New Zealand teams six times, if you include the playoff, and we won three, you know, including beating the Highlanders in Dunedin. So uh, any year you can go toe-to-toe with the New Zealand teams, you know, you know you're know, you onto a good thing. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a great season. I mean, we, you know, as I say, we qualified for the quarterfinals. Um, and again, unfortunately, it just came up short. But um, it was very difficult because I feel, I feel for the guys because we, we – we had just got back from Argentina in our second last game. We played our last game in Durban. And then when we qualified for the quarterfinals, we had to get on a plane and fly back to New Zealand. So uh, it starts having its toll on you. It's certainly not an excuse, but um, I think the guys were pretty tired. And, and we lost to a very, very good team. We lost to the Hurricanes. We ended up winning the competition. So we were well beaten. But it was certainly a, a wonderful improvement the next year. Yeah. So why did you leave there? Um, you know, the interesting thing with the Sharks is, is that I had had a – I'd had two full seasons with them. Um, I was commuting because my family were down in Cape Town. Um, and, um, and I just, I, I thought that I wanted to take a, a, a new tact. It was very difficult getting on a plane every week and flying home two hours and then flying back again two hours. And uh, um, I, I, w- I was really interested in getting, you know, back into the international scene. And, um, you know, at that stage I was... Um, I, I'd, I'd basically been approached by a colleague to start some form of a consulting company. Um, and, um, you know, that's when the, the Worcester opportunity came up. You know, they, they didn't necessarily want me to go there in a full-time capacity, but, you know, to go there and help them because they were struggling again. And, you know, um, I, I certainly think I learned a lot of lessons from the Newcastle experience and, you know, then got the opportunity to go back to Newcastle and, you know, this time, we, we were able to to make up the deficit and uh, interestingly enough, it ended up being, I think it was seven or eight points clear from the bottom of the table. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great experience and, you know, I wasn't supposed to stay on there. It was never really the plan. I was just to try and help them save off a relegation, which we did do that. And you know what happens when you build in those relationships, you know, you become so fond of people and, you know, the management of the club at Worcester was so great and, you know, very kind to me and they said, oh, please, you know, would I stay on for the following year? And, you know, then I did stay on and then and then the American opportunity came came around. So, um, again, I prematurely left, um, which is not ideal, but, um, you know, that's where I find myself now. You know, now I'm, uh, now I'm well entrenched in the US of A. So let's talk, you said established consultancy. You, you've, I don't know when you launched this, but you have a, a compendium online of training videos, coaching videos called Rugby IQ. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you launch that? Um, so Rugby IQ, we much, must have launched in 2008, I believe. Oh, wow. Round wow, about that. 
I wish I found it. I, I wish I'd found it like three years ago. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and that was that was a fun venture. I, I did it with two great mates of mine, two guys I, I played with and and coached a little bit. Two scrum halves actually. Um, one of them lives in the states now. He lives in LA. Um, and um, and the other one, the other friend of mine was a strength and conditioning coach for the for the Springboks actually under Jake White. And um, you know they they're just very passionate rugby guys. You know as as we all were. And um, we just decided you know we uh, between the three of us at some stage or another you know you get contacted by young coaches, high school coaches, club coaches who who are wanting to learn a little bit more about how things are done and. So we decided that we would put, as you say, this compendium of, of drills together. And we did everything from very basic passing skills to a clean-up drill to a tackling technique to uh, we then launched some plays and some exercises, and it just grew and grew and grew from there. And, um, yeah, eventually it, it it became quite a difficult business in, in an initially because it was a subscriber-based business, um, and it wasn't really sustainable to keep the business. And then... Um, Greg actually, uh, Greg Commons was his name. He took over the business and um, he's changed the format because it's now obviously it's open source and you, you know now you can see it for you can see the videos for free. But it's it's a fun thing to do. You know it was a it was a great thing to do. It was lots of hours of filming and um, you know in the in the hot sun. But um, yeah, very rewarding and um, yeah, it's great you know to know that you can play a very small part in something that we hope. I hope helps coaches and players, you know, in terms of in, in terms of developing themselves going forward. So sort of to touch back on the Wooster job, you get uh you got a lot of praise for the foundation you were able to set in the 18 months you were there. But the Eagles job, what made you apply for you know to become our head coach? What was the process? Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily applied or if I was approached by my agent who said to me, you know, you know, was I interested in, in, in him maybe putting my name forward and, you know, would I look at something like this? I didn't, I didn't really think in the beginning too much about it. Um, I, I knew a part of me at some stage was really keen to get back into international rugby. Um, I love the pressures of international rugby. I like, I like the challenges of it. Um, uh, the 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 pressure levels are, are are quite a lot more spiked, although there's a lot bigger gap between the games that you have. But you know it's a higher pressure situation. Um, again, it's I'm sure you appreciate it's a very different animal in as much as that it's not the week in and week out um, rigors of a Premiership or a top 14 or Super Rugby. Um, and your pool of players is hopefully a, a bigger pool of players that you that you're able to to get to. And you know, I suppose Aaron, I'm gonna say the same thing that everybody else says. You know, is that um, you know, I just think there's so much potential in the USA. And I didn't especially have my sights set on another international job. I wasn't applying for another international job. There wasn't another one available. Um, and I got a call one day and said, you know, would I would I be interested in having a conversation with the guys? And, you know, we had the conversation and then, as you say, the rest is history. You know, then I was very privileged to be offered the job and, um, you know, I'm really excited to be doing it. I think there is a huge amount of potential. I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, we're certainly in the infancy of, of, of a lot of change at the moment. 
um, particularly with the advent of the MLR at the moment. Um, but I think I'm so excited. I mean, in the games that I've gone down to watch and I, I think the, the way they're going about it, I think the way uh, the commission has put the plan together, you know, they're not trying to go into 30, 40,000 seater stadiums and there's not been an atmosphere. You know, they great little stadiums. Um, I find that the teams are really well coached. I've reached out and spent some time chatting to or, or conversing with all the coaches. Um, I think they're all doing a fantastic job. And I think sooner than we know, we're going we, we're gonna to have a really, really quality product in our hands. And, and that's only going to help the, the, the national team. So um, I think there's a lot of work still to be done. I think we're a good couple of years away from from starting to achieve, you know, what I believe we can achieve. But I think um, it's exciting times. And I suppose, um, you know, this is this is very much like the venture of a, a Newcastle or a Bath or a, or a Worcester where, but, but maybe on steroids, you know, where um, the opportunity is just so immense, you know. And, you know, now that I've had so much time to travel the country and, you know, I've, I've been to university games, I've watched college teams, I've watched a couple of high school games, obviously watched a few MLR games. And it's amazing the, the passion that there is for the game. So, um if, if in a few, a few short years this is a game that can can be picked up and 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 loved by a lot more Americans, then um, wow, then we've got a real opportunity to to um, do some great things in the in in the on the world stage in a few years to come. You take over the reins of the squad in January at Chola Vista. You know how important do you think that was to American supporters? Because originally you were slated not to take over until you know, this June with uh, your duties at Wooster, like that would have taken away. I mean, I did the math and it was about a third of the games you would have had to build towards 2019. And you end up only missing two. And, you know, I mean, I, I having delved into your, you know, your resume and the development of coaches versus, and players, I was like, wow, okay, two games. That's not bad because that's, you know, it was less than 10% of the games that we'll have towards 2019. What do you mean missing two games? How do you mean? So, so the, so Dave Hewitt coached the, the November tour and you were originally, oh, right, right. you were originally slated to take over in June. Right. Right. I'm with you. Are you talking about the November tests as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's right. You know, interestingly enough, I was with Worcester at the time and I, I, I actually went over to Germany um, spend some time with Dave and the other Dave and the coaching crew and, and that's where I first got to meet the guys as well because I thought it was important. I, I mean, I think and the first thing I must say is that when when we when we knew that, you know, I was going to start with the Eagles and I had a contract with, with, with Worcester, um, thanks to the, you know, the, the work of the guys at Worcester and, and then Dan Payne, um, they were able to come to some form of an arrangement where I was going to be able to travel back and forth and fulfill both roles. But the truth of the matter is by the time we got to Christmas, both parties, I think, knew. Uh, I think the Eagles would have known and I certainly knew and Worcester knew that, you know, I was never really going to be able to serve two masters and, and do a good enough job. Um and, you know, I, I went to Worcester and, I, you know, I, I, I did have one or two guys who I thought could be decent candidates to take over. And, you know, they spent some time with me there just before Christmas. 
Um, and, I, and I owe Worcester a huge debt of gratitude because, you know, I literally went to them and I said, you know, I, d I don't think for me to do the ARC by traveling backwards and forwards from and doing Worcester one week and the ARC next week is going to do anybody any favors. And, you know, it was still a time where we were still in a fight to stay in the premiership. It was really important for the club to stay in the premiership. And I think the players of Worcester deserved somebody who was going to give their 100% attention and so did, the, so did um, the Eagles. So the club were fantastic and they, you know, they, they got the replacement and I think that's all that their focus was, that somebody was going to go there and be able to do a good enough job and, and, and he has. I mean, he's a fantastic guy in Alan Solomons and they've got a hugely experienced coach there. And I got their blessing to be able to join the, um, the ARC from day one and um, answer your question, I think it's hugely important. I think it's hugely important. I can't tell you how I think it would have, or how it would have gone, because I don't know, but it, um, it was a tough enough campaign being there 24-7. I, I, I think it would have been completely disruptive if, if the players had a coach flying in and out and not being there half the time. And um, I'm just very thankful and very grateful for, you know, the common sense that prevailed on, from, on all parties. And, you know, Eagles were fantastic as well. When I, when I announced that I can come full-time, they, they were wonderful. So um, I think it was important. I mean, if I consider how much I've learned in those six, seven weeks we were together, um, pretty intense period of time, um, tougher competition than people think it is, but huge amount of learning. And, um, yeah, I think we, you know, I can say we've taken our first step, certainly in the, in the, in the, in the direction of the preparation for Rugby World Cup next year. That might have taken about 10 years off of your life if you had to commute between Wooster and wherever the Eagles were. So yeah. you stayed I think it would have been a lose-lose situation for everybody. I don't think it would have worked in anyone's favor. And I think, thank thankfully, fortuitously, it worked out. So you stated previously that you didn't have a significant imprint on the training squad for the ARC. How does that change in June? Well, I mean, significantly, significantly in as much as that I know the players a lot more intimately now. Um, even the players who weren't in camp, I've now been able to watch them and study them closely. And it was brilliant to be able to see the amount of players playing in, in the MLR at the moment now that who are eligible for selection that I haven't seen before. Um, again, I mentioned it earlier, I, I went to uh, a handful of the playoff game, games for the, for the D1A, you know, to watch the collegiate uh, rugby and that was awesome to watch and get to see a couple of guys who are on the depth chart for for the Eagles team and you know get to understand them better and I've obviously have, have access to quite a lot of footage as well so I've been you know rummaging through footage and watching the players a little bit more intimately and so I, I feel like I've got a much better handle on the squad I mean I know the guys I'm you know I can have a conversation with them I know what they how they play and certainly the ones I've been able to watch a lot of, our, you know, I've conformed opinions on, on strengths and weaknesses and areas and of opportunity as well where they can improve. So um, whilst I think the selection over the ARC was pretty good and I think, you know, the likes of Dave, Dave Hodges and, and, and those guys who knew what they were doing, uh, Scotty and Sean and, and Greg all, all knew the players intimately. So, you know, I don't, I don't suspect the squad's going to change that much um, because they, I think they did a pretty good job in selecting it. It was just more for me to say that I didn't know the players yet at the time of the of the squad assembling. But you know, I've certainly um, thrown myself at getting to know them, and pretty confident now that um, got a really good handle on almost all the players in our death chart at the moment. Now, what was the ARC like for you? What were the hard decisions you had to make over the tournament? 
I think I think probably the most difficult thing for me with the ARC was, and I have had it a couple of times before, but sometimes you get a little bit more time before the first game. The difficulty for me was was going in and 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 going in blind, you know, and then having to make decisions week one and week two into the campaign, where the truth of the matter is I didn't know enough about the players. You know, even even an exercise like going back to the Sharks, when even when I went back after being in Japan for a year, I still knew all the players intimately because I'd followed South African rugby so closely and I'd watched all of them play for years and years and years. I had a handful of them who were in the spring box. You know, half these guys I'd never met. I'd never seen them play a game of rugby in my life. And, and that was that was probably the biggest challenge for me, you know, spending time late at night in my room in Chula Vista, you know, just trying to watch footage just to get up to speed with, you know, if I could get footage on players, you know, that had played maybe in the APC the year before or just, you know, just watching um, the final last year where Glendale lost to Utah in the final, for example, and watching that and watching the players that are, that are in camp with you and just getting a handle on them. And so that was, that was a bit of a baptism of fire, if I'm honest with you. That was quite difficult. Um, but, but, you know, it's amazing how much you pick up, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're watching the games and you, you're studying the players and you get, to, you get to know them quite quickly. So um, I, I would say that was probably the biggest challenge. Um, the other challenge was that logistically it was difficult because, you know, that's a tough time of the year, particularly the players playing in Europe are getting paid and they're getting professional contracts. It's very difficult for them to be away from their clubs for five weeks in a row. So, you know, you have to form relationships. And so a lot of players are coming in and a lot of players are leaving again. And that became very disruptive because as I was learning about a player, he was off again. You know, go, yep. whether that was Blaine going back to Cardiff or it was uh, you know, whoever it was, whoever the player was that was going back to his club. So that was pretty disruptive. I mean, when we flew down to to South America to start the the, 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 the last two legs of our competition, we pretty much were, you know, pretty much were, were nearly 10 new guys in the squad. So it was learning it all over again. So... Um, but I'm hoping, you know, that that is um, that's done and dusted now. And as I say, I've got a pretty good handle on on the group of players. And in fact, a very good handle on them. And uh, that's one thing I won't have to stress about going forward. From Los Angeles to Montevideo, what? How do you see this tournament taking the Eagles in their development over time? Because I think that we the agreement goes for two more years to where the teams stay the exact same. Um. There's a, there's a couple of things about the competition that I think are really good. Uh, the one thing the ARC offers you that you don't get a lot in international rugby and other areas around the globe is, is being in camp together for five or six weeks consecutively is hard work. I mean, it's really, really hard work. I mean, you're asking young guys to be away from their families, newborn children, it's difficult um, on families to lose, you know, their husbands or their boyfriends or for for a significant period of time, especially if you've got a young mum, you've got a mum at home, you've got a young baby at home. So, um, but what it does teach you is it teaches you some really good lessons in terms of preparation for a rugby World Cup because that's what happens. And I've seen it before. I've seen teams who, just traditional teams, you know, teams like, France, for example, I'll give you France as an example. I mean, France will go on a three-match tour now. I think they go down to New Zealand. They'll be away for three weeks and then they'll come back and then 
they'll play two or three tests in November and then they'll play the Six Nations. And the Six Nations have got two breaks between it. So you play two weeks and then you have a break and then you play another two weeks and then you're, you, you're pretty much at home. You don't get to travel. You're not, you don't stay in the team hotels together. So really when you look at a four-year cycle, the longest period of time the French team are going to be away is when they go to France, when they go to Japan next year for the Rugby World Cup. And, 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 you know, that's a conditioning program. That's something that a lot of teams are not used to. So that's one big advantage that we get as a group. Um, we get to understand the rigors of travel um, and touring and being away and having to accommodate that. Um, I think teams like Argentina are, are continually improving um, and they, they're, they're a tough challenge. Uruguay are an improving team. I mean, they've obviously just qualified for the Rugby World Cup now. And we know that Canada maybe aren't going through their best period of time at the moment now in the 15s, but they, they are going to improve. You know, they've got great resources. They've got a great under-20s program. They've got a fantastic sevens program. And we know that they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And it just seems now, you know, if you see with Dan's appointment to the Americas and the influence that a guy like Gus Pichot is having at World Rugby, you know, World Rugby are really starting to put a lot of emphasis into the Americas, you know, and understanding and growing the game here in North and South America. So, you know, I think at this period of time, it's a great competition. I mean, it, it asks a lot of questions. Um, you know, the USA a couple of years ago lost to Brazil and lost to Uruguay on the road. So they're not easy places to go to, you know. Culturally, it's very different. Um, the Latino crowds are very, very passionate and they're very, they're very um, hostile. And, you know, that's all good for the learning. It's all good for the learning. So, yeah, it's a good competition. Um, what I would say is, complemented to that competition, what we do need is we, we need more rigorous test matches playing against more teams in the top 10 in the world. Um, and that's, that's going to be one of the easier ways for us to improve. I mean, we will struggle at the moment against top 10 teams, but that's good. That's a good thing that, you know, we'll learn fast when that happens. So going away from the Eagles specifically, so what is your influence on the age grade structure when it comes to U18s and U20s? Hasn't been very much to date, but it will be. Um, so, for example, the U20s assemble in Houston the week that we're there. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to have, well, I'm not hoping, we are going to have a lot of collaboration with their coaching staff um, and their coaches. Um, certainly from our point of view, we will most definitely be sharing all our information with them um, and offering them any help and assistance we can get. Um, young guys employed by um, American Rugby called J.D. Stevenson, who's done... He's done All-Americans, he's done APC, he's done the U20s, hugely experienced coach, was a head coach of Lindenwood um, before he came to the USA. And he's a yeah, he's done an amazing job in our age grade program and, and, in a, and an even better job in helping a person like myself and educating us um, in terms of the knowledge and the strength and depth that we've got coming through. So we've got a, a really important program coming up in the summer. We've played Canada a couple of times at U20s. That's obviously for qualification to the 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 uh, the other tier of the Junior World Cup, um, and that's really important for us. You know that, that that's the area that I think we need to be putting a lot of our resources into because they're going to be the Eagles of the future. You know, and uh, we've got an opportunity now to to breed them and breed the correct culture in, into them at the moment now. So, from my point of view, is is a very much an open door policy. We, as I say, we will be sharing all our ideas. Um, and, and hopefully I'll be able to spend a lot of time not only with the coaches but also with the guys in camp and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And it's a collaboration that, you know, has, has got, a, it's got a, a strategy around it. Um, there's a program run by our performance department, 
called Operation Saw, and that's um, that's about the development of coaches at that, at that age grade level. Um, and it's exciting times. You know, it's exciting times to develop young American players and young American coaches. So i really, really interested in being a part of that. Are the fitness and selection standards that came in at the beginning of the Mitchell era, are those still in place or are those evolving? Those were the Eagles elite training squad fitness standards and then Eagles development training group fitness standards. Well, they're always fitness standards that are involved. I mean, I, I, you know, whether they're Mitch's or they're not Mitch's, I mean, I, I don't know about that. I can tell you that I have a very clear idea in terms of what the, the training standards are. I understand what the metrics are for what I would deem world-class players and what the minimum standards are for them to be able to play international rugby. And those standards are still in place. I mean, I, I can't comment to, you know, what was put in before me. And, you know, I certainly, you know, um, from my point of view, brought in a clean slate and have a, have a very clear understanding in terms of what the standards are. And, um, you know, there's, there's a few developments in the pipeline where I'm hoping that those, that we are actually looking to even improve on those at the moment now by the use of statistical data and by the use of, uh, a little bit more cutting-edge technology that we're looking to bring in to the Eagles, um, that we're going to be able to measure those things even even more accurately now. So, I mean, it's a it's 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 an absolute given in the modern game at the moment now that there's a minimum requirement from an SNC point of view. The American collegiate system tends to deliver players at an older age in preparation for the Eagles. You know, how do you see yourself working with uh, the collegiate development pipeline so that athletes are you know, more ready at 22, 23. Although I think, you know, for the most part, most at most, the Marcus Smiths of the world are, are the special ones. You know, the, the Owen Farrells of the world are the special ones. The Mauro Atojis are the special ones. And even if you, we go back, James Haskell's a special one. A lot of these guys are still breaking into the premiership at 21, 22. Yeah. Look, you know, I mean, you, you, you can't be all things to everybody in the beginning. Um, you know, we need to systematic, systematically start an approach. I think um, there is a good relationship with an understanding of the collegiate game at the moment. Um, there's a good understanding in terms of the, the, the depth that's coming through. There's a strong relationship with JD and, and monitoring of those players. As I say, it's new technology that we're looking to bring in at the moment that's going to help us assess and monitor those players. Um, and, you know, let it be our biggest problem that we've got, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of players that we need to monitor. If that's our biggest problem, that's not much of a problem in my eyes, you know. So, I mean, we wanting to create, we want to expand the game as much as we possibly can. And, you know, what better way than getting it through the high school program and, and, and the college program? You know? So um, we, we certainly do have systems in place where we monitor those guys um, and where we, we hopefully look at the standards that um, that we're setting and, and we're trying to to, uh, to to deliver on from our side. Um, but, and it, but it starts with the coach development programs, it starts with educational programs in terms of what is the minimum ex expectation if you're going to play U20 um, at, at Eagles level. And, you know, that's that's part and parcel of the work in progress that, we, that we're putting together to, to build these relationships between um, – between all the colleges and USA Rugby, but I say we're not going to get it right overnight. I mean, all we can do is just continue on the on the levels of communication. But the big thing is 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 around the development of coaches as well. Coaches to be able to ultimately deliver a program at that level, where the, where you can have a confidence that at, at a college level the players are definitely getting coached well enough that 
you know, when they do step up, whether that's at a U20 level or whether that's international rugby or even major league rugby that they're able to, you know, they're coached well enough to be able to play the game. And that's how you're going to unearth the special ones that you were talking about, you know, once we go through their program. So since the ARC ended, you've gone on a survey of top rugby in the U.S. with, you know, collegiate rugby. You you went to D1A games in the first round and you've been to MLR games, you know. Is the quality right now at an acceptable standard or how much do you think you need to, I guess, uh, pump up with some go juice to help out coach development and uh, player development so that we can get to where we need to go? I'll say, I think the level of the coaching of the MLR is pretty impressive. I was impressed. I am impressed with, uh, I can see the guys um, are coached. We do need a pump up though at levels below that, in my opinion. I think we need a, a, a we need to fast track the skill development of our players, um, skill development around the decision-making aspects of rugby and the skill elements of rugby. So you're basically skill elements and you're catching, you're passing, but catching and passing in, in traffic and where you've got to make decisions and you've got to execute those decisions under pressure. Um, collision skills are something that are critically important as well. Um, I don't think they, they're they well enough honed yet and I don't think we're well enough coached. I think there's a lot of intent, um, but I think that the skills aren't that good. And I think we do, we, we, we're quite a way off, um, if I'm honest with you. I think... We've got a long way to go in terms of our still skill development program, but as I said to you, you know, the, we've got to do everything we can to upskill the coaches as quickly as possible. Because the more we upskill the coaches as quickly as we can, and they can resonate out into the community, and they start preaching the word and they're coaching it in the correct way, um, then there'll be an uptake. You know, it's uh, it'll be something that we you'll, you'll get quite a quick uptake, you know, particularly if there's. If they're doing a, doing it a lot, and there's a lot of time spent on skill acquisitions and and um, all the elements around that, so um, it, it it's not an easy task, you know. Um, and there's no magic wand. I mean, we can't wave it and hope that things going to get um, become right overnight. Um, but I do think we need to we do need to give it a bit of a a, a shot in the arm and, and try and fast track this program. And 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 I believe that's the reason. Why there's the advent from our high performance team of this of this project saw, of this operation saw, because it is a, it is an operation to go out there and strategically drive the coach development program as quickly as we possibly can. With MLR Academy starting, uh, how do you see those integrating into age grade selection structures with collegiate programs? Do you see the model for selectors changing or? Are the is the collegiate model going to evolve and partner with academies? Yeah, I I, I don't know how that's going to work. I, I can't comment to that because I can't come along now and say institutionally they must change what they're doing from a collegiate point of view. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think they I don't think there needs to be a change. I think there needs to be a collaboration. And I think um, if they're going if you're going to put a, a, a um, academy structure together, then that is the route to go. Now, whether you do that under the collegiate program, whether you do that under the MLR program, or you do that under both, I think it's critically important to do that. Um, I think the collegiate game is a successful competition. It runs well. I think if they could develop uh, an academy system, each one of those D1A colleges, and the MLR teams could do the same thing, 
I think it could fast track the game incredibly quickly. Um, I don't think that the one should survive, should operate exclusively to the other. I don't see why it needs to happen. Um, and and again, I don't necessarily see that there have, has to be um, hundreds and hundreds of numbers in, in the academy. I mean, certainly in the early 2000s when I was around at the advent of the academy program in the UK, and they started each club, premiership club had 25 players, and it wasn't sustainable at the time. You know, and it then got down to anything from 12 to 18. Some of them maybe only 10, and they they handpicked those individuals quite a lot better. Those it was a tough, it was tough to get into that. But you know, now I think with the exception of two or three players, I think every player now playing for the England team has come through the academy process. Um, I certainly have worked with over a half a dozen of them. You know, George Ford, Anthony Watson, Jonathan Joseph. They all came through the academy programs that I was involved in. You know. The, the Dylan Armitages of the of the world, Tom Woods, uh, Courtney Courtney Laws, Dylan Hartley, all of them came through the academy systems in in the UK, and I believe you know got fast tracked you know to being able to, as you said earlier, play pro game at at twenty two twenty three because they've had enough you know skill development work, and and I think that's really where we need to go from our development point of view. If you said to me what was the most important thing to fast track our game, I think it would be the advent of the academies in those programs. What are the gaps that need to be addressed so that we can compete with tier one nations on the pitch specifically? Well, we need time in the middle. I mean, that, that's basically what it boils down to. We need time in the middle and we need to we just answer it now in the academy program. We need to spread our net far and wide and get many, many more guys playing rugby, you know, um, and then being able to, to assist that. I mean, the fact of the matter is the depth chart at the moment for the Eagles right around the world, lucky if we can get to probably 100 people, 100 guys. I'm talking about the men's 15s game. Um, that depth chart should should have five, six, seven hundred names of fiercely, fiercely competitive positions. You know, there's, um, there's a handful of positions in our team. There's a handful of positions where we've got some wonderful strength and depth, but there's a handful of positions where we don't. You know, we've got maybe three or four players in the world that can play international rugby at that level, and that's just too few. That's far too few when you consider the rate of injury. And so uh, the biggest challenge at the moment is, to, as I said earlier, is to fast-track players who, who can get to play at that level, make sure they're playing consistent enough rugby. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be on hundreds of thousands of pounds contracts in, in the UK. They can, they can be on a very good MLR contract, but they need to be playing. They need to be playing consistent rugby because you know that's uh, that's how quickly you're going to get a return on your investment. So um, that's really where our challenge is. We need we need more and more players playing it, and I think we're getting there. I mean, I think the pool is is growing as we speak, um, and the competition's getting better. And you know, as I said earlier, with the advent of MLR, it's now on our doorstep, and you know, we're going to unearth some some real diamonds. We're going to unearth some gems in, in this competition. You mentioned previously that you were working with MLR coaches. How are you working with them now? I know uh, from my own conversations with Greg uh, McWilliams that, uh, you know, you guys are watching, you know, film every week of the, you know, MLR matches, whether they're live or the coded out film specifically for each player to, you know, chart improvement and send feedback. Yeah. So, um, well, how we're working with them is we've reached out to them. Um, what we've done at the moment now is 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 
they're obviously pretty full on at the moment now with the MLR and they're busy with their competition and I understand you know what that's like when you when you're busy with that the last thing you want is being hounded by by a national coach but um, what the plan really for me is is just to reach out to them um, which I say we've already done I'd like to share with them and, and sit down with them and I've done that with probably four four of the coaches already being able to have a sit down and share our philosophy um, let them understand what we are trying to do from a national team point of view uh, where we're trying to go and what we're trying to achieve um, what are the aspects that I'm looking for in certain players? Um, and what what are the guys in their group that we're looking at? And, um, you know, just to have an open-door policy and just share ideas with these guys. And, um, yeah, I mean, for example, um, post the ARC, all the players' reports and their uh, um, development programs that we've put together, we've shared that with all their coaches. So they're now 100% clear on what uh, the expectations are from us as a, as a coaching group. And as time goes on, you know, the dialogue will continue to get better. And post-MLR, definitely going to be inviting these guys into our camp and spend some time with us. And it'll be, uh, it'll be, it'll be good to spend some time with them and, and just continue to grow relationships. And, you know, I mean, we, we certainly need them as much as I hope they need us. I mean, we, we need them to be obviously producing a, a decent rugby player, which I think they are doing. And they need us in terms of support, you know, um, to make sure that, you know, we don't necessarily want, if we know that there's an Eagle player playing or not playing uh, MLR rugby and they're in the need of somebody, you know, let us reach out and help them with that, you know, and continue to build bridges. And that's really, really where I hope we're going to go. So Dan Payne wanted to hire an Eagles coach that would help develop, you know, an American style of playing and coaching. What have you done so far with that? Well, I think the first steps we need to take is what is it going to look like to have an Eagles, uh, an American style of playing? Um, again, um, it's quite a contentious issue that, um, again, on the one hand, you may want a specific style of rugby that you want to play, but I can tell you the demands are out there that they want a team who's going to win. And uh, that's first and foremost, let's not fool ourselves about that. So. I think the first thing we need to do before we start developing styles that work really well in theory is to understand where our strength lies. And that's what I'm currently doing at the moment. I'm trying to understand where does this pool um, of strength lie? Do we have outstanding playmakers? Do we have very physical individuals? Do we Are we exceptionally fitter than other people? Are we stronger than other people? Is there a skill attribute that we've got that other teams may or may not have? Um, and we're working through that at the moment. And the bottom line is, you know, you're going to have to, I think you have to develop your, your plan around where your strength lies. You know, I mean, you can't have this vision to want to play in one way and then not select people who can play like that. So um, I think that's where our first step is. I mean, we, I think more about the, the Eagles way and the way we want to build an American game is more about what it's going to look like as a professional athlete and the character of the individuals that we want involved in the group. Um, I think, you know, the specific way we play that, you know, that will evolve and change according to many different aspects or according to um, if AJ McGinty is available and Will McGee is available to play 10 for us or if those two are injured and we don't have them available, how will we change our game plan? I think those are questions you ask under those circumstances. I think if we're playing against a team like Georgia, have got a very, very strong pack versus somebody else who have got, um, better attacking game and their backs are, are, are better. We'll adapt again according to that, and and I think that's it. That that that, that in many ways is, is 
is um, one of the areas that I'd like us to, to, to try and understand. That is, the best teams in the world are the teams who are able to adapt their game. I mean, if I were to say to you, what is the Irish way of playing? I mean, the Irish have played in many, many different ways. You know, they, you know, they do have a wonderful running game and they've got a great attacking game, make no question of a doubt about that. And they've got the players who can play that game as well. But, you know, if you're going to um, Aviva or you're stuck in Dublin and it's absolutely chucking it down with rain, believe me, they've got an ability to play a different type of game. So um, I think first and foremost, just understand where our strengths lie and then, you know, over a period of time, we just, we start coordinating again. But the, the bottom line is, we got to keep, we got to win more than we lose. You know, and that's what the expectations of the American public are. Going into the 2019 warm up, if you had a blank slate, uh, who are some of the opponents you'd want to schedule to prepare the Eagles? I would definitely want to play against any of the top ten teams in the world. I mean, I know, you know, there'll be definitely be a challenge if we were to play, you know, the top three or four teams, you know, if we play the All Blacks, we play Ireland, we play England right now, we play South Africa or Australia, it's going to be a tough task. I mean, there's no question of a doubt about that. Um, yeah, there, there will be some big questions that are asked, but, you know, we, we'll learn from it. We'll know where the gaps lie. We'll know where, where we've got to go. In saying that, I think it's quite clear that, you know, we certainly are, you know, a little bit behind the blackboard in certain areas. And I don't think our set piece functions well enough at the moment for us to play um, against those teams and be competitive. Um, our breakdown skills certainly need to improve a lot. And I think, as I said earlier on, our decision-making abilities need, need, need to improve from a playing point of view. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that we need to look at to improve, but, you know, I'd like to be playing a handful of the top, the teams, you know, maybe ranked between five and 10 in the world and see how quickly we can adapt. Final question before we get out of here. So, I mean, I've always looked at MLR and, you know, it's finally here now. And I'm sort of thinking, well, it's actually going to have an impact this year. But I always looked at it. The real impact of what MLR will be is after two full seasons. So what kind of impact Major League Rugby will have on 2019, do you think? I'd really like to believe that it'll have a big impact. Um, I would like to believe that. Um, I... I believe that this year is going to be uh, a year of a lot of teething problems. Um, I think there's going to be some issues where um, there'll be immediate improvements. No question of a doubt about that. I think the advent of a couple more teams will mean we'll spread the net far and wide. Um, but I think what you might find as well going into next year is that, you know, the teams will attract one or two players of slightly better quality. And um, uh, when those players, you know, are, are attractive of better quality, then, you know, that'll just improve the game. And the more the game improves and the more the guys play against each other and the competitive spirit is there and, you know, you've got four or five locks who are playing against each other the whole time, um, then then I, think, um, then I think it's going to be competitive and it's going to really help us, you know, leading into, leading into, the, into the, the, the Rugby World Cup. I just think, you know, us not playing rugby at the moment now, you know, or hoping that the guys are getting enough game time in other areas of the of the world is um is 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 too hit and miss and i think to have i think i was working it out probably 55 60 percent of the eagle squad is playing mlr rugby at the moment and i think that's only going to be a good thing you know so i think it's going to have a significant impact on it i mean i'm not saying that necessarily means we're going to go to the rugby world cup and become favorites to win it because i don't think that's going to happen um but uh, 
again, you know, our objective of Rugby World Cup is that, you know, we want to go there and we want to be competitive. You know, if we lose all the games, but we're highly competitive in a, in a very, very tough pool, you know, we want the supporters to see that, you know, we know what we're doing and we gave 100% of ourselves um, and that there was a lot of fight in what we were looking to do. And um, funnier things have happened in Rugby World Cups. You, know, you, you never know. You never know what might happen. All right. Uh, that wraps it up for us. Thank you very much, Gary. Um, I look forward to seeing you in Houston, actually. Or if my uh, my significant other says, she asked me about going to Colorado for Russia, but I will be in Houston for the game against Scotland. So Great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be good. Look forward to catching up then, man. Otherwise, okay. maybe maybe I'll see you in Colorado before then. That's it for us today, and we are back on Monday night. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor... I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.